Welcome to EI Dialogues, a podcast series brought to you by Educational Initiatives, an organization working towards creating a world where children everywhere are learning with understanding. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, academicians, policy makers, and education leaders to delve deeper into the most urgent and important questions on solving for quality and equity in education. This episode is hosted by Pranav Kothari. In this episode, we have with us Dr. Santosh Matthew. He's a political economist and is currently serving as the country lead of social and public finance policy at Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. 1992, I'm born in 1961, okay? I have an entire district to run, and that's a district of Palamo. At that age in, in, in our country, where do you get this opportunity? And then what happened was we had this drought. And the standard response of drought to Palamo is that let's sanction a few big dams. I was able to take a position which said that, listen, that's not what we want. In fact, if Palamo has drought, it is a complete failure of our imagination and our thinking and our planning. Because never in the history of Palamo have we had rainfall that is less than 700 millimeters. And the thing is that nobody ever knew this data point. So when I had uh, the Prime Minister who, who, who was visiting to check on this, the Governor, the Chief, when I made this point that, you know, they were all stunned to know that 700 millimeters in drought. I think that's the role of the IS officer. To be able to find the things that are what I call what, what we call in management terms root cause analysis. The thought of Indian civil services brings with it memories of several stereotypes, like a pile of dust-covered files, an unimaginably difficult to crack entrance exam, and a chauffeur-driven car with flashing lights. In spite of the sticky stereotypes, does the field represent an opportunity? to solve for development problems that plague the nation? Dr. Matthews shares what it means to be a part of the Indian Administrative Services, the different projects he was part of, how one can be a public service entrepreneur, what questions philanthropists should ask themselves before making investment decisions, how to solve for capacity constraints in the Indian education sector, and how EdTech can be a potential solution for improving learning outcomes. On to Pranav now. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Welcome and thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. So if you could tell me some of the highlights uh, of your IS career, what are some of the most memorable events uh, that you have taken with you? That'd be great to hear. Well, the most memorable is always the start. I mean, here is this you know, young man born in Kerala, educated in Chennai and in, in Delhi. Uh, he gets assigned to Bihar and then I go to my first uh, subdivision uh, was Khagadia in the aspirational district rankings with one of the poorest and most backward districts of India. Even today Khagadia is almost at the bottom. Uh, but one thing I found is that um, uh, the poorer the area, the more backward the area, the kind of impact that you can have and how welcoming the local people are. And there is so little expectation from government because of 
series of failures that when they see somebody who is young, who is, uh, you know, wanting to make a change, is willing to take personal risks, they stand with you like no other. And what's great about I mean, Bihar, I think, is much maligned. But I think what's great about Bihar's administration is that uh, when you do that, you get support that is unique. That is not to say that you don't feel let down many a time, but that's in the nature of, of, the, of the trade, of the, of the job. I mean, the IS or, or work as a civil servant is certainly not for the weak-hearted. Uh, but it offers you the kind of opportunity at an age uh, which nothing else I think in the world will offer you. But then you have to take it in a particular uh, spirit. And, and most importantly, and I, in fact if you ask me, the biggest inadequacy I had, and that inadequacy actually matured over time, is almost a complete lack of understanding of the nature of politics and how that politics interfaces with demands that are placed on the civil service. So to understand the roots of that momentum and to work in a way that will lead to system change over time. I mean, what's the rational for the existence of a so well protected, uh, constitutionally protected uh, service in this country? It's only because to help you take, if you ask me, is to help you speak truth to power. But in an informed way not in a way that simply, you know, promotes your own uh, sense and need for taking the moral high ground. Mm. You know, just servicing that craving of yours can be sometimes hugely dysfunctional. And it's another form of corruption, if you actually ask me. Interesting. Because the people of India have spent so much on you, and, and yet if you are not in a position to, to deliver on that, given the constraints, then you're letting them down. So in that sense, it's a... Uh, but, but let me also tell you that uh, it's been one failure after the other. But one learned from every failure. And, uh, and I think the more... Uh, and, and the best part of that career really was two of my postings. One... Uh, each one of them were fabulous. One was when I got a chance to manage the drought in Palamo, 1992-94 and the kind of system changes, the Pani Panchayat giving voice to the Dalits and um, the tribal population against what was otherwise a socially and politically oppressive order of the district and, and all that goes along with it. And the second and it was, was really my time in six years I was a professor of social management at the Lal Bahadur Shastri National Academy of Administration. One could, you know, see the kind of uh, enthusiasm, hope and idealism with which we got uh, the youngsters coming in and how they transformed. Some not so well, some fabulous, but a lot of middle ground of people, almost I would say 30 to 40 to even 50 percent, who given the right circumstances will do an extremely good job. A lot of uh, the imagery around an IS uh, officer is ranging from power to Lal Bhatti Ki Gali to, you know, immense opportunities to make money. Uh, but there's probably a, a different side of that. Could you share some of the, you know, pieces that are equally as exciting, equally as aspirational, but are not known to the general public that's just thinking of IS as another way of improving the dowry 
that one could potentially get uh, to re regain the social status coming from very remote parts of India. But I'm sure there's a positive side of the IS story also in addition uh, that you know people don't know. Um, what is that? No, but let me just you know sort of try and answer the other part that if 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 that is what you come into the IAS for for simply improving your social setting of course it does and to be able to make money or to use the state for your own personal or your family's sort of upliftment then you will come to grief rather early i'm not saying that they will not survive in the system yes they will survive in the system but uh, they will survive with a taint uh, which will be telling because, I mean, let's face it, we as a country still respect people who stand for what is right. And although it may be difficult initially, uh, there are sources of support. Let me tell you uh, this whole thing from another perspective. If you look at the chief minister who really, I mean, as an IS officer, most of your time is, at least the early years, are spent in your state. The chief minister is head of an administration and he makes choices about who to place where. And what he does really is he looks at what are the strengths and weaknesses of this person. And then he places you precisely in the job in which people think you are fit for. If however, you are a person who is, willing, who is in a position to use the training that you have, the, 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 the abilities that you have to improve the, the social good, that's exactly the posting you will have. So in a certain sense, you create, in the first few years, that's not the case. But then in the four to five years, you create a, a reputation for yourself. And it is that reputation that largely decides. I'm not saying that, you know, an exception normally proves the rule. That therefore, I'm not saying there are no exceptions. And therefore, it's not difficult. But then looking at opportunities, that's the, the kernel of the question that you asked me. 1992, I'm born in 1961. Okay, I have an entire district to run, and that's a district of Palamo. At that age in, in, in our country, where do you get this opportunity? Every department depends on you, reports to you. Government's faith uh, and their ability to run that district uh, is, is, is upon your ability to, to, to bring this whole thing together. And then what happened was we had this drought. And the standard response of drought to Palamo is that let's sanction a few big dams. I was able to take a position which said that, listen, that's not what we want. In fact, if Palamo has drought, it is a complete failure of our imagination, our thinking and our planning. Because never in the history of Palamo have we had rainfall that is less than 700 millimeters. Okay. 700 millimeters. And the thing is that nobody ever knew this data point. So when I had uh, the Prime Minister who, who, who was visiting to check on this, the Governor, the Chief, when I made this point that, you know, they were all stunned to know that 700 millimeters in drought. I think that's the role of the IS officer. To be able to find the things that are what, I call, what, what we call in management terms root cause analysis. And to work around it. So what we really did there was to organize people, particularly Dalits, who are the dominant, you know, in terms of numbers, but were so disempowered, mm. make their land productive by working on the system of ahars and pines that were there for centuries but had fallen into disuse. Right. So use the extra resources that we were getting 
to actually build for the future. But in a way that what we did was we organized them into we, Dalits and tribals, we organized them into Pani Panchayats. And it's around them, there was a social mobilization around them that we built the physical structures. I'm not saying we succeeded, there were problems. But an approach that, that has a, a much more nuanced understanding of the socio-political realities and try to, to, to do the programming that can you know, deal with those complexities is where the eyes really comes into its own. But let me also say that um, you know, in the 1980s when we were in the district, 80s and 90s, I joined the IS in 1985, those were still days in which uh, politics was, was fueled more by patronage. So, in a certain sense, the hallmark of a good officer was a person who can also deliver patronage and also some results. And the balance was skewed in terms of patronage and less in results. But now what has happened is India has fundamentally changed. And the change in India that has happened is that politics today is way ahead of the ability of the state to deliver. So, today you have the electoral salience for public service delivery. And if you ask me, health and education are two things that are just waiting to be taken, you know, nurtured and, uh, and harvested for electoral gain. But we can't do that. We can't do that because our political leadership is not in a position to be able to offer this to the public. Because they have no confidence that the state is currently constructed has the ability to deliver on things like this which require multi-year nuance programming. That I think is really uh, where we are stuck as a country. You know, when I think about solving a social development problem, uh, I think about starting my own NGO. I think about joining a top-notch consulting firm in their social development practice. I think about starting a company that could potentially come with products to solve this. Rarely do I sort of think that the IS could provide me with an opportunity to create a large-scale, sustainable solution. Uh, this is partly emanating from the fact that I would have rotations in multiple departments. Um, it could be because there isn't enough historic precedence. Like, when did we hear of an inventor from the IS community? Like, how, how should one, how should a social development entrepreneur think about these multiple choices that they have uh, as, as different careers to achieve the goal that they have in mind, the public service goal that they have in mind. The great thing about government service is that uh, you can be an entrepreneur without the downside financial risks associated with that entrepreneurship. See, the initial days you are a subdivisional officer, you're in the districts, it's a different kind of a job. You're there to implement the government's policies. But the moment you come into policy making, or rather, I wouldn't say policy making, because the making is by the political executive, but the advisory role, then you're really like an entrepreneur there. And you're a public service entrepreneur here, and you have the entire might and the financial resources of the state. Uh, just not the financial resources, but the, the legal framework within which the state in India operates to able to, I wouldn't use the word play, but to design your solution with. And that can be intoxicating. <laughs> so my, my rule in when I was in government for 32 years, I was in government and then I left, uh, I took VRS after 32 years. And my last posting was chairperson of the National Council for Teacher Education. 
uh, I had this rule. My rule was that I would spend 10 hours of a day working on what government wanted me to do. But I would never go to bed without working two to three hours on what I wanted my government to do. Ah. And what I wanted government to do was actually the leftovers of the many postings that I had. Wow. So, for example, uh, if I may, uh, one of the most exciting pieces of work that I did was when I, for almost three years, I was Principal Secretary Rural Development in the, in the Department of Rural Development in Government of Bihar. When I worked with Abhijit Banerjee, Esther Duflo, Rohini Pandey and Clemor, on actually designing one of the world's largest RCTs, randomized controlled trials, where we were working on a hypothesis that if you ease the finance constraint on MGNRGS, you know, the great thing about MGNRGS is that you can put 20,000 rupees almost into the hands of poor people. Right. sustainably every year on year. And can you imagine if every poor person in Bihar, every poor family in Bihar had access to a 20,000 rupee income. sort of income guaranteed literally for the rest of their life. I mean, just simply <laughs> your nutrition problems for one uh, gets to solved and all the cognitive problems that comes out of that begins to get solved. Your ability to even think right. and to, you know, it changes. And yet it was not happening. Bihar had one of the highest levels of rationing on MGNRGS at the time. Almost 60% of the people who want an MGNRGS work couldn't get it. So this is what we hypothesized. And what we really did was that, uh, I'm telling you this is an example to tell you how exciting it is to be able to be uh, an entrepreneur within government. And remember, I'm, I'm taking Abhijit's name or Esther's name to devil to demonstrate that you are not working on your own. If you're willing to reach out, if you can demonstrate that you have the intellectual curiosity and the, and, 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 and the equipment to be able to deal with the best scholars in the world, it's a natural partnership. It's almost a match made in heaven. So they need a field, we need the insight. And if you can actually bring these two together, what better way? But the point I'm making is, so our hypothesis was that, so in, in most government schemes, what happens is that government pushes money down. So if you have three lakh rupees to spend, one and a half lakh, three lakh crore rupees, 1.5 lakh crore rupees will be pushed down to the various levels. Center to state, state to district, district to block, maybe block to panchayat, depending on what is the nature of the scheme. So remember, and most of this is borrowed money. And then when you have a 60% expenditure of this 1.5 lakh crore, remember the number, that's when you come back for your second installment. So the panchayat comes for the second installment to the block, block comes to the district, district comes to the state. But as principal secretary ruler, when I found that, you know, 30% of my blocks were without money, 30% were sitting on lots of money because of some political dysfunctionality or some administrative dysfunctionality and I couldn't hit my 60%. So you have plenty and scarcity coexistence. Number one. Number two, what's the incentive for the well-performing panchayat leadership? You spend money, you're stuck, no more money. And you have to wait till, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry panchayat comes to think before I can actually get. So all we said, we'll keep, we will not send money down. 
we'll set up the electronic marketplace by which you give us the master role which we'll upload in the public sphere and based on that we'll keep on giving you money so you're not dependent on somebody else's success for yours you're dependent on your success for your success so it's also an alignment of incentives so this is what we did and guess what we found rather than a galloping expenditure we found that over 20% reduction in expenditure wow we were aghast but then thank god i was working with some of the best minds in the world and they and we had together put around a 7000 household survey and the survey showed us that what really happened was the laborers the workers were not getting any money less their payments were exactly the same before in in those areas where we did the experiment and those areas where we did not expect what really happened was corruption went and how did corruption go because real time uploading of master roles in the public domain and they felt at a greater threat because they were under the watchful eyes whether this will sustain over time is time will tell but that's the result that we got as an entrepreneur you almost created tens of thousands of crores of savings that the government could then redeploy into other sectors do more initiatives and innovation and the ideas of tapping into the best intellectual sort of you know frontier i mean yes i mean the best minds in the world working alongside you in yes. one of the poorest parts of the world to come up with solutions what is you know your read on the capacity in the education sector in india and you know how do we build more capacity how do we get these 10 million teachers and another million you know education professionals what is the road map for building capacity for the sector i think the single most important thing in the education sector is really our teachers and i'm biased of course because of my work in the national council for teacher education but i think that's where we have to begin obviously that's not the end uh what we really have to do is 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 enable both the creativity of our top class teachers to prosper to survive to thrive and for others to learn from them but also we need to provide a mechanism by which the not so brilliant teachers are able to up their game in a way that is systematic and in a way that is able to produce results you know by results i don't mean that you need to have a 80% pass or a or a 70% first class uh really it's it, it's about building your students as individuals people who are able to 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 deal equally with both success and failure who have an intellectual curiosity um and who have uh, a moral compass with which they 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 run their lives and uh, and in that sense what i'm going to say may sound a little uh, contradictory because i'm going to say that given the vast numbers that we have and uh, uh, we have to harness technology uh, not as an end in itself uh, but as a force multiplier to allow all boats to rise on the one hand and on the other we have to allow people who are extremely good not just as teachers within the system but also this huge pool of people who who aspire to make a contribution to the sector maybe as mentors for teachers maybe as teachers themselves 
allow uh, uh, them uh, to make a contribution and, and there I think the state sector schools have a big role to play. So that I don't think we can, we can at least given the conditions in India, we can think of a situation where private schools are going to deliver this country. Of course, there will be private schools and you know, um, they should do what they do. Uh, but we have to change processes, capacities, I would even dare to say reward and punishment uh, 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 frameworks. Above all, we will have to give them the tools with which they can uplift. And there, you know, personalized adaptive learning has a very important role to play. But the problem with personalized adaptive learning is that some people feel that we are trying to substitute a teacher. Some people feel that this is, I mean, this is, this is you know, driverless cars of the future. But driverless, I mean, teaching and bringing students up and children, making them grow uh, as good citizens with all the attributes I talked about cannot be achieved by a machine. But, but a good teacher facilitated with the tools, that's going to make a difference. And one of the, I want to call out one of the initiatives that uh, we tried at NCT, which is to set up Diksha, which is a national teacher platform. It was uh, and is uh, an attempt in that direction, is to, is to actually harness the power of digital hmm. to aggregate and then make available to others uh, 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 actually a way in which they can get the best of teaching materials, learn from others, and also, uh, re you know, help the teachers get good objective diagnostics about their students. So it's, it's, it's assessment at one level of students, non-threatening, so that it's a diagnostic for the teacher and the tools for the teacher to be able to respond. So the idea is just that you don't teach the class, you teach the student, and then you build the capacity of not teachers as one homogeneous commodity, but teacher with, as an individual, as, as given their sort of strengths, weaknesses, and the sort of circumstances in which uh, they're called upon to perform. So the roadmap for me really is teachers at the fulcrum, uh, instrumentality such as, uh, as, as Diksha I mentioned. Uh, I would also advocate for uh, a substantial rehauling of the way uh, teacher education institutions in this country are, are set up, are managed, uh, evaluated. Uh, I think that's, part, that's also part uh, of, of the solution. But having said all this, I think um, uh, we cannot get away any longer from much higher levels of state investment, allocation of budgets, for example, to both education and health, both of which the human capital issue is really what's going to hit uh, our country. What are some ideas uh, which can you know, help increase learning outcomes at scale in education? I had talked about the role of personalized adaptive learning uh, as a way in which we help teachers uh, be more productive uh, in the teaching learning discourse. One of the biggest problems that we have today in the personalized adaptive learning context is that it's largely been a private tech offering 
And what happens really in a private tech offering is that you are limited by the scale of the market that you play with. That's a problem which the sort of the unicorns have solved, you know, the Googles or the or uh, um, your Facebook. And so they have access to this huge market. Because of this, so products that are today available in the market are not based on a vast enough uh, 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 data source. If in the journey that India takes on using personalized adaptive learning, particularly in its school, state schools, one thing that India can really make a big contribution, not just to its own people, but to the world and to the science, is to actually help build out a science of learning library. And that can be done when individual states in this country, well, they, you know, they have these budgets under, you know, Sarva Shiksha Abhiyan, to, and that's for and that's money available both for hardware and software to actually encourage that the, if the states of India would actually go down the personalized adaptive learning pathway but do it in a way in which and that will need contractual in fact government of India uh, has actually issued the guidelines for this the enabling guidelines for this do it in such a way that the platform is delivered from from Diksha the national teacher platform and with arrangements so that the, the data that flows is actually made available in an anonymized fashion uh, to a group that builds out the science of learning library. Then what happens is that the millions of children who are there, who are interacting with the system, as more data comes in, the science of learning library really gets built. And, and through that way, the, 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 the full potential of the technology then becomes available. It's almost like doing a Google in education, but not for Google's private purpose, but for India's and the global public good. That's a great contribution that India can make. And we will only improve with time. And uh, that's a direction I would encourage uh, people in states, particularly education departments, to go. So you've recently transitioned from the services to the philanthropy sector. What was the rationale behind that? So 32 years in government was a long time. I'm grateful for the opportunity. I've learned a lot in my own little way, tried to make contributions. But one thing that, you know, what that kept surfacing is that we are today in a state of our revolution uh, as a country where we need to do certain difficult things, which are, as I said, long-term. Uh, the, the certainty of success is not there. And given what I call, you know, uh, the hyper-accountability of a middle-income democracy, where there is really very little tolerance for failure, whether in our parliament, in our, in our bureaucracy, I felt that there is a role for outside agencies to actually work with the state to be able to conquer some of these otherwise long-term and more complex problems. Let me give you a sort of an explanation, little more explanation on this. So I think there are four kinds of money. One is the tax rupee that is spent domestically. And that's your classical budget and what government expenditure is all about. Right. The second type of money is the tax rupee that is spent abroad. That's called bilateral aid. India, for example, is spending substantial resources in giving bilateral aid to countries in the region and to countries in Africa. 
as part of our bilateral aid program. For many years, India was a bilateral aid recipient. We still have some bilateral aid coming in, but, more, but a lot, there's also the outflow. Then third is the tax rupee that is aggregated and spent, which is your multilateral institutions, United Nations, World Bank, or the regional cooperation sort of uh, agencies. And all these, you know, tax dollar, tax rupee, whichever way you call it, have got their strengths and weaknesses. Especially from an accountability lens and tolerance for failure, ability to take long, risky bets. Hmm. They have their own features. Right. So, as a programmer inside, as a person who was, I, I, I always saw myself as a, as a social development entrepreneur working inside government, increasingly I found that I was able to be more successful when I was able to tap financial resources that had parts of at least two, sometimes three. For example, I was Joint Secretary Skills in the Ministry of Rural Development. People do not know that we ran perhaps at that time one of the largest skilling programs in the country. I had over what, 12 to 15,000 crores of rupees in investments wow. with private companies. And uh, one of the things that problems I came up with is that we really do not have a predictor for success. We do not know that when a school dropout, rural poor youth comes to us saying that he wants to get skilled, we have no science around judging the probability that person will fit for this trade or whether this person will, is fit for wage employment at all. So, this really meant that we needed big data, we needed the analytical firepower of, of you know, a million regressions, uh, as it were. And I knew it was something I couldn't fund from government. So, what did I do? I actually went to the Indigo, I think Indigo as, as, as a product. Indigo is one company which is domestic uh, and has, to a very large extent, solved the execution problem. So I went to them and said, give me your philanthropy money. Don't give me the money, but can you set up a team that will do data mining for me? Can, can run the million regression, set up the data structure, so that using data, we can build a predictive model, not for the purpose of keeping a rural poor youth person away from my center because I want to achieve high rates of success, but I know what is the mitigating strategy that I need to put in place Right. for me to get success. So that's an example of how. So having seen this, I felt that, you know, given my sort of you know, work abroad, by the way, I, I don't, I'm not sure if how many people know that uh, of the 32 years I spent in government, six years was as a professor at the National Academy of Administration. Three years I was country director of a Rockefeller program called Leadership for, for Environment and Development. Uh, that is six plus three, nine. And almost six years I was doing my PhD and my MSc at Sussex, which really meant that I'd spent a lot of time outside the hardcore system. So every time I worked in the system, I was like a new kid on the block with lots of new energy, lots of new insights. I was able to bring this and I consciously did that uh, to be, to, to, one, to remain current, the other is to bring new ideas and to, 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 to keep maintaining my energy level. So I, but, but I saw how difficult it is to able to harness these resources because mm. there's a lot of information asymmetry. So I thought maybe the time has come 
I mean, I had four years left in government if I had remained. Rather than spend my last four years uh, in government, maybe I should spend time on the other side, educating the other side about the immense possibilities that their tax dollar, their philanthropic rupee, can actually do with the opportunity that exists in their government, provided we can find the reform champions and the social, political context within which to take up action. Right. So my idea is to dedicate the next 10 years of my life, and with that I will you know, hang up my boots, is, is really to help the philanthropy sector spot those opportunities, give them, you know, help them with frameworks with which they can understand how they should you know, uh, uh, intervene in countries such as India. There's a rise in philanthropy happening in India with the 2% corporate CSR money coming in with a fair bit of you know, high net worth individuals realizing and signing up for the giving pledge. Uh, so there is a lot of philanthropic capital coming in uh, from people who may not have the time to think before giving uh, thoughtfully. Right? So, no, the main agenda of the corporate is to continue and grow its business. The main agenda of the high net worth individual is to do what they've been doing. But they now have this money, they have this intent to give. When they're giving, you know, what are some three points they should keep in mind? How should they decide where to give, you know, how much to give uh, you know, for each project? Uh, any kind of pointers for yeah. people who are giving yeah. as to yeah. how to give thoughtfully would be great. See, the, the, the struggle for a person who's, you know, earned this money to great effort and it's a lifetime of, of work that really generate, generates a surplus with which they can actually make this, uh, this spend, they would like it to be impactful. And the biggest fear they have is that their money will be wasted. Yes. So the first thing that I want them to realize is that they would have certainly made so many mistakes in their pathway to getting where they are that they need to be realistic, that all of their money is not going to get them. But if they would be a little risk-taking, and if they would either invest their own time or invest in people who have the ability to do the, the social, political, and the administrative analysis of what are those pain points, particularly with respect to state incapacity, and then work with whom I would call reform champions within government. And those reform champions need not necessarily mean they have to be bureaucrats. It can be a reform champion and be a minister. It can be a reform champion and be an MLA. It can be a reform champion and be a member of parliament. But reform champions who have access to the machines, levers of state. If you can actually then design a program which, of course, you need what the reform champion is obviously one part of the piece but also the context in which that reform is happening. Right. Because there has to be a hard problem to solve and there has to be a problem which the political incentives crave a solution for. Right. You can't be far too ahead of your times in these things, right? Yes. For if you want that to succeed. I mean, health and education for me are very good examples of the political will being there, but a conspiracy of silence that is overshadowing our political discourse today because of their inability to promise and then deliver. The point that I'm making is that if you can design an intervention in that particular way, then you will not only spend your you know, rupee and get the satisfaction out of it, but you will also contribute to the much larger goal of nation building. 
So one way to really do that is for, for philanthropists, high net worth individuals to try and do their philanthropy work not by themselves, but to build consortiums. Got it. And to then bring in people who have spent the years, who have the insights, and to then, and you need scale for that. So, so if you actually come into consortiums or, or, or make contributions to institutions that do exist who have that, and that, uh, that would be uh, uh, far more fruitful uh, and is, is, is a good way to go is my sense. What advice would you have for people who are aspiring to join the services, someone who's preparing for the AI system? What are those investments that they should be making to achieve success in this career? I think the first point I want to make, it's not advice, but I mean, the first point I want to make is that don't even try getting into, into the IS or the senior civil services unless you really are motivated to be an agent of change. Uh, uh, unless the public purpose is so up, high up in your aspiration for yourself, don't try it. You're going to be extremely frustrated. You can make much better money outside. But if you have the public purpose in mind, and in India, you know, I mean, we, we don't have a shortage of problems, uh, nor a shortage of opportunities. India is not some sort of pauperized country in, in, in some part of the world. I don't want to call out any particular continent. Uh, we have the resources today. We have the politics uh, that rewards good work today and therefore you are going to enter uh, India and its government at a time which is so promising but if you want to be really successful all I would urge you to think about is is you and this I'm not sure the IS training per se equips you for it but of course the life in the IS will and that is to have the ability, the intellectual curiosity and the tools and the equipment, as it were, to digest the latest in economics, in politics and in the social sphere. Today, there is so much, this fantastic work that's actually going on on the frontiers of our knowledge, whether it's technology, whether it's, our greater, whether it's behavioral economics, uh, whether it is more uh, better understanding of, of managing large systems or even financing. So the days of a fixer administrator who actually fixed things for his political boss, I'm not saying is gone, but it's going. And I can see the green shoots of, 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 of this. I've, I've even experienced it. Is that when you have these great abilities, to bring knowledge, the frontiers of knowledge, and, and the ability to localize it for local solutions. By local, I don't mean village level, because you will typically work at a subdivision, district, state, and country level. To be able to work that, that's when you will set yourself up for success. And the reason why I say it's important that you do that, because if you are coming in as a person who simply takes orders and simply fixes for your boss, whatever. I mean, your boss can ask you to fix things that are in the public interest and may not be so much in the public interest. But if you are just, I'm not using fixer in a very negative sense, but a person who can get things done, if that's all your sort of ability is, then you're setting up yourself for high risk and probably multiple failures. 
if on the other hand you actually built yourself up as a, as as what i would call a the scholar administrator uh, then what will happen is that when serious problems hit the system then it is to you that they will turn for solution and advice number one so what you create there is an internal market that's evolving within government for people who have that ability to think to ideate uh, and to be able to design both policy and to what what is india's great problem which is actually the execution deficit if you have that ability the macro micro people management skills the ability to see financing in a creative way then the internal markets work in your favor not only that if something god forbid goes horribly wrong then there is a market even outside the government that's available for you and the moment you are aware that both these markets are existing then you are able to negotiate with the system from a position of strength rather than from a position of weakness you no longer then become the supplicant requesting for a job you are the person who will do what needs to be done and the system comes to you when the time is appropriate i'm not saying to you will always have a nice you know you'll have fantastic jobs you will never will always be secretary finance that's not what i'm saying but you will be respected and uh, the system will have use for you especially because of our understanding of where politics in india today is thank you so much for coming and sharing the pearls of wisdom uh, i very much learned a lot from this session I appreciate your time uh, in doing this thank you dr thank santosh mathew If you enjoyed this episode, do subscribe to our podcast. To hear more from government officials, do listen to our podcast with Anil Swaroop and Dheer Jingran. You can also check out the entire video series on www.youtube.com/eivideos.